Well, this morning we are honored to have here in chapel uh, Dr. Patrick Odell. Uh, Patrick is the president of Baptist Mid-Missions, which is a missionary organization that has sent missionaries literally all over the world. They serve in 50 foreign countries. They have been out serving for many, many, many decades. And uh, God raised him up for this uh, particular position at this time in their history. He pastored the First Baptist Church of Illyria, Ohio. I was privileged to speak there in the church while he was pastoring. First time I met uh, Patrick, he was a teenager in high school, and I preached in his church where he was living in Minnesota. So that, I mean, he looks old and that tells you how old I am. So um, we are so honored to have he and his wife, Ruth, that are they're here today. And so let's give uh, uh, Dr. Odell a warm welcome as he comes to speak here in chapel. Thank you, Dr. Pettit. Uh, just to give you a little bit of perspective on the age thing related to me being a teenager when he spoke in my church. You were still young then too, brother, okay? You were still young. You're, you're, I think you had two kids and they were just little ones. And so uh, both of us were young back, back in the day. So I am grateful for Dr. Pettit. I'm grateful for Bob Jones University. We have been praying for you both personally as well as Baptist Admissions as a whole for this university and for Dr. Pettit especially. We're so grateful for him and his leadership and grateful for the future of this institution and really grateful for the opportunity I have this morning to minister God's word. And so we are thankful also from the perspective of Baptist Admissions that many of our missionaries have trained here either at the collegiate level or at the seminary level, at the grad school level. And so much of the Baptist Admissions family has a special affinity and affection for Bob Jones University and all that this institution means. And so we're grateful for the opportunity to minister today. We will be around campus all day and we'll be around Greenville tomorrow as well. So if you come by the den, uh, my wife and I are going to be in the den uh, really throughout the afternoon and evening, although I'm having a hard time not not getting over to a basketball game, I understand, that's happening too. So I might do that as well. But if you're around the den, come see us. We'll have a display there. Uh, If you're a BMMMK, we've got pizza for you at 7 o'clock. We'd love to have you come and stop by for that as well. If you're not a BMMK, go find one and tell them you want pizza, all right? And uh, then join them and join us for pizza. Take your Bible this morning or your device and go with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. As you're turning to that passage of scripture, I want to ask you a series of questions that may at first seem somewhat disconnected from the overarching theme of this text of scripture, but I think you'll you'll follow along with me logically and we'll eventually get there. Luke chapter 14, we'll be looking at verses 25 to 33, but here are the questions I'd I'd like to ask you this morning. Uh, First of all, how many Bibles do you own? I know that's a hard one to answer, right? Especially if you're counting both printed Bibles as well as digital Bibles. Uh, Let's ask another question. How many Christians do you know? Again, tough to answer that question, but probably I would guess that you could say in the hundreds of of Christians that you know, right? How many Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, gospel-preaching types of churches are near you? We drove around Greenville a little bit yesterday, and I joked to my wife, you know, (laughs) there's a Baptist church on every corner, not to mention Bible church and other Bible-preaching churches all over the place here. But how many are, are, in, are in your area are near you? Imagine if the answer to those three questions was this, zero. Imagine if you didn't own a Bible. Imagine if you didn't know a Christian. 
And imagine if there were zero churches in your vicinity that preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you this morning that one in four people on planet Earth, that's their answer. Two billion out of the eight billion souls on the globe today, if you were to ask these three questions, they would say they don't have a Bible in their heart language. There's not a Christian they know that they can share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And there's not a Bible preaching, gospel preaching church near them. I don't know what that does to your heart, but I I appreciate what one of our Creative Access uh, Nation missionaries said in relationship to that and even the number of lost people in in the Creative Access Nation where she served. She says, she said this, God is not good with that. And I'm not good with that. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we should not be good with the fact that one in four people, two billion people are considered completely unreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ today. For one in soul, one in four people on the planet have no gospel witness. And they're predominantly in places that are referred to as creative access nations. 70% of the world's population lives in one of those creative access nations, nations that typically are predominantly Muslim or Hindu or communist or Buddhist in nature. And so part of what goes through my mind as someone who serves in missions is this, what will it take and what kind of Christians will it take to change those statistics? What kind of Christians will it take to change that? I'm convinced that the kind of Christian it will take will be disciples who have counted the cost and chosen to follow Jesus Christ no matter what it costs. And that's what our text of Scripture is about this morning. Follow along with me as I read from Luke chapter 14, beginning reading in verse 25, where the Word of God says this. And there went great multitudes with him. And he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me... And he not his father and his mother's wife and his children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth bear, but doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying... This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is a great way off, he sendeth an embassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple. Our passage of Scripture this morning is speaking in terms and in the context of counting the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. God has blessed me with a wonderful wife and three daughters and a son. And one of the things that I discovered early on in our 32 years of marriage is that God has wired women differently than men, and really specifically in the area of shopping. I'm one of those guys who really doesn't care to go shopping. But yet, when we were first married, I thought, you know, that was like an obligatory type of thing that I needed to do. If she was going shopping, I would go along with her. And I quickly discovered that her version of shopping and my version of shopping are altogether different. My version of shopping is get in, get it bought, and get out as fast as you can. Success. Yes. Right? Her version of shopping is wander around and take a look at this and then take a look at that and ooh and ah over this and ooh and ah over that. And I quickly found myself getting very frustrated by that. 
So I realized the best thing for our marriage would be to say to my wife, you go shopping, I'll stay home. And so she began to do that. Well, what I didn't realize is that I kind of created a monster there in terms of giving her the freedom to do that, but also in terms of then training three little girls to also become shoppers. So eventually, as those girls grew up, and they're all married now, as they grew up, they would all, all four of them would head off shopping. And I realized it was still good for me to not go along for the ride on those shopping expeditions. But when they got back to the house and they brought their bags of the, the goods with them, there was one question that I would always ask. Usually they, you know, would parade it and say, oh, daddy, look at my new dress. And oh, daddy, look at my new shoes and show me all those types of things. And I'd be happy and I'd smile until it came down to the time to ask the one very important question. And you can guess what that is, right? What did it what? cost? That's right. How much did it cost? count the cost. And that's what Jesus is speaking of here. And and it's in the context of verse 35 of there being multitudes of people that were following Christ. Notice the way it states it in the text. And there went great multitudes with him. So there are thousands of people that are watching Jesus, listening to Jesus, hoping for a miracle, or maybe listening for him to say something really radical and put the religious leaders in their place. And they were really fair-weather followers. They were really spectators of what Jesus Christ was doing. And so it's in the context of the multitudes, the thousands of spectators, that Jesus makes these really three tough statements. And all of them is concluded by the common statement that's found in verse 26, verse 27, and verse 33. Unless you do this, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. And the, 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 the hub to this entire text is found in verse 28 when he says you've got to count the cost. You need to count the cost. You see, Jesus wasn't interested in having fair-weather followers or spiritual spectators. He wanted these people to know that Christianity is not just showing up to hear somebody preach or to watch somebody do something controversial or to perform a miracle. Christianity isn't about being a part of the crowd. He wanted them to know that there is a cost to following him. And unless you're willing to pay that price, you cannot be my disciple, is what Jesus very boldly said. A disciple is an all-in follower of Jesus Christ. And so what the Lord wants us to do in light of all of this passage of Scripture, the big idea is simply this. The Lord wants us to count the cost and be willing to pay the price of being his disciples. And it's that kind of Christian that's going to make an impact for Jesus Christ to reach the two billion souls that will say, no Bible, no Christian, no church. The two billion souls that are unreached for Jesus Christ. You see, only genuine disciples of Christ will take the gospel to the tough places where it is so desperately needed. Fairweather followers and spiritual spectators will never reach a lost and dying world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want to point out three conditions that Jesus very clearly states here in this passage of scripture in relationship to being a disciple. You cannot be my disciple unless, he said it very plainly, notice those three conditions. Number one, Unrivaled love. You cannot be my disciple unless there's an unrivaled love in your heart and life. Verse 26 very specifically states it when it says, If any man come to me and hate not his father and his mother and his wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Unrivaled love. And so Jesus here is making a statement of comparison. I think it's important for us to understand that as you interpret Scripture with Scripture. He makes this statement in Matthew chapter 10 in verse 37 that helps us understand it. Matthew 10, 37 states that he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So Jesus here is speaking in, in light of that text and speaking in terms of comparison. 
So what does it mean? What Jesus was teaching was about a lesser love that almost appears to be hatred by comparison. A lesser love that appears to be hatred by comparison. So he uses the comparison of, of family. And what he says in that comparison of family is, no member of your family can be more important than Christ. He uses the comparison of self and his own life because we are all by nature self-lovers. Real disciples should have such a deep-seated love for Christ that their love for others and their love for self will pale in comparison to love for Christ. You see, it's choices that reveal who or what we really love, right? It's when you have to make a choice. I grew up in, in the Midwest. I grew up in Nebraska. And before any of you were born, we had a good football team. That's not been the case for the last 20-some years. We've had a pretty mediocre football team. But once upon a time, ask your parents about it, in the 1990s, the Nebraska Cornhuskers won three national championships. They were a good football team. And so having grown up there, that, that has been my team to root for when it comes to Saturdays and, and football in the fall. But the Lord moved us 11 years ago to Ohio. And I had a feeling I'd hear at least one of you, okay? And if you know anything about Ohio, you know that there is... The Ohio State, as they put it, very arrogantly, perhaps. <laughs> and so living in Ohio, you know, you can't help but, but begin to think, wow, this is, a, this is a legitimate football team. And my Cornhuskers really aren't very good. And, and so I, I, maybe, uh, I guess I'll start rooting for them. And so I found myself cheering for the, the Ohio State Buckeyes, cheering for them when they would play on Saturdays, cheering for them in their bowl game, cheering for them even at times for the national championship. And so if you were to watch me on a Saturday listening to or watching the, the Ohio State game, you'd think, man, this guy loves the Buckeyes. With one exception. What's the one exception? When the Buckeyes played the Cornhuskers. Because when the Buckeyes played the Cornhuskers, you would think, by comparison, that, that Saturday, that one Saturday of the year, you would think that I hate the Buckeyes. Because I wasn't cheering for the Buckeyes, I was cheering for the Cornhuskers because a choice had to be made about my love and my obvious greater love was for the Nebraska Cornhuskers even if they're not very good. And it's that type of thing that Jesus is speaking of here in terms of our supreme love or this unrivaled love that we would have, a love that makes, makes all of our other loves look like hatred by comparison to our love for Christ. And it's when we make choices that that comes to be the case. Does your love for Christ make you Make your love for everything else appear to be hatred. Don't be content with a love for Christ that is slightly stronger than your love for other things. You cannot be my disciple, Jesus very clearly states, if your love for him has no rivals. The second thing, the second condition that Jesus points out here for being a disciple of Christ is not just unrivaled love, but unusual suffering. And he describes it there in verse 27. He says this, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. There's that key phrase again, cannot be my disciple. And it's important for us to understand what this doesn't mean and then what it does mean. It doesn't mean some common malady or trial or trouble. I remember growing up and hearing people saying, well, I guess that's my cross to bear in life. You know, and there was some weird physical malady or some, you know, their mother-in-law or something like that. That's my cross to bear in life. That's not what this is talking about. It's not the difficulties or the challenges of life. What it is talking about is a willingness to suffer. What it does mean is a willingness to suffer. You see, the cross was a symbol of suffering and reproach and and shame and ultimately death. And so when Jesus made this statement, the crowd that was listening to him would have visualized a condemned person carrying a cross to the place of execution. 
It was so common. Uh, crucifixions were so common in that day that they knew exactly what Jesus was speaking of when he said, you must take up your cross and follow me. They estimate that in Jesus' lifetime, 30 plus years on planet earth, 30,000 people in Israel were executed by the Romans. So crucifixion was just a regular thing where you watched a parade of, of people bearing their crosses and being crucified. And so when Jesus made this statement, what he made was a statement that was powerful to them. They would have envisioned in their minds him being spat upon, a person being spat upon, being mocked, being laughed at, and then ultimately dying a horrific death. And yet Jesus uses that statement to describe what it means to be a disciple. He says, and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That is speaking of a willingness to suffer. A genuine disciple of Jesus Christ must be willing to suffer. And we know so little of that in America, right? But our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world know it all too well. God's given me the opportunity to be in a few Creative Access Nations. I was in one uh, just, just in December. My first visit to that Creative Access Nation was a number of years ago, and I still remember the occasion I had to be able to, to speak and help train some pastors in, in this wonderful pastors meeting in this very difficult country. But the thing that really stands out in my heart and my mind is the, the, the message I received via email a few weeks after I returned from that Creative Access Nation because the message described what had happened to one of those pastors. He was accosted by radical Hindus because he was a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they threatened to kill him. And what they did is they took a, an extension cord and they wrapped it around his neck and they began to, 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 to uh, choke him with this extension cord. And, and they told him, if, if you don't stop preaching about Jesus, we're going to kill you. And they would tighten the cord around his neck to the point where he would be this close to passing out. And then they loosen it, and, and, and he would, you know, regain his composure and say, okay, are you going to recant? Are you going to stop preaching about this Jesus? And he would say no, and they would do it again, and they do it over and over and over and over again. If it hadn't been for his older parents, and in this society where he ministered, there's a great deal of respect for the elderly. If it hadn't been for his parents getting word of this, this situation happening and then storming into the room and stopping those that were costing their son, he would have given his life for Jesus Christ. Because he was unwilling to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And stories like that can be told all over the globe today. I was in that same nation in, in, in December, and there are pastors in prison in that nation today because of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me just ask you simply this morning, students, if that was you, what would you do? What would you do? Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ who is willing to suffer whatever is necessary to continue to live a faithful life of discipleship for Jesus Christ. Jesus says it very plainly, verse 27, the end of the verse. It says, if you don't do that, you cannot be my disciple. And so being a disciple of Jesus Christ involves an unrivaled love. It involves unusual suffering. And then finally, it involves unconditional surrender. Verses 28 through 32 describe this whole concept of counting the cost. It's introduced in verse 28 when it says, For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he is sufficient to finish it. And there are a couple different analogies, a couple different examples that are, that are used there. For time, I won't go into those two comparisons. But there are two comparisons. First comparison is that of building a tower. The second comparison is that of, of going to war. 
But in, in that text, it, it concludes with verse 33, which I think is a very powerful verse because in verse 40, 33, we really see a, a summary of this final expression that Jesus is illustrating in the previous verses. Notice what verse 33 says. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, there's our key phrase, he cannot be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple. And so the third condition is, is this unconditional surrender as it's described there. And here's the challenge. Notice the challenge. He has to forsake all. Forsake all. And it's interesting, that word is really, it, it creates a word picture. That word for forsake means to arrange away from. Can you kind of visualize that? It's, it's like someone sets something aside and arranges it away from themselves and then just kind of steps back. That's what it means to forsake all. It's also translated, or could be translated, I should say, it could be translated to say goodbye. Forsake all. Arrange away from. Say goodbye to. One writer describes it in this way. He says, quote, practically speaking, the idea is that any believer who seriously desires to be Christ's servant must consciously, specifically, and prayerfully say goodbye to all people goals, desires, and possessions that are important to him. And then he goes on to say, Christ must have no rivals in his life. That does not mean, he goes on to say, that that does not mean that these things will be taken away from the believer. But should the sovereign, loving Lord remove them from his life, knowing what is best for his servant, the believer will have already said farewell to them, end quote. You catch the significance of that? In that every surrendered believer has to live a life in a manner where, where you've given everything to God and, and surrender to him. Now, does that mean automatically that God will say, okay, I, I am going to take those? Not necessarily, but in his sovereignty, in his goodness, and his graciousness, he may. And as a surrendered believer, you say, that's okay, Because I'm giving my all to you. I'm giving all that I am and all that I possess to you. You see, a a genuine disciple is willing to say goodbye to all people, all possessions, all positions, all protection, and all plans to follow Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple. It mandates unconditional surrender. Some of you may be familiar with the story of William Borden. William Borden was destined to be the heir of the Borden family dairy and fortune. He had graduated from Yale University with a promising future of great wealth and great success. But Borden sensed God's call to become a missionary. And as a result of that, he left all that had been promised to him in the, in the family business and all the wealth that was included in that. And he left uh, America to leave for Egypt in order to train and learn Arabic because it was in his intent to work with Muslims in China. While he was in Egypt learning Arabic, he contracted spinal meningitis. And within a month of contracting spinal meningitis at the age of 25, William Borden was with the Lord. After his death, the following words were found penned in the front of his Bible. They read, no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. No reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. 
Why is it that William Borden put those words in his Bible? He put those words in his Bible because he was living a life of unconditional surrender. His life was not wasted because he died at the young age of 25. No, his life is a, to this day is a stellar testimony of someone who has lived a life of total surrender, giving everything to God, every, every person, every possession, every plan, every position, even every sense of protection to serve Jesus Christ. And students, it, it will take those kinds of people to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one in four that today say, I don't have a Bible in my heart language. I, I don't know a Christian and there's no church near me. It will take disciples like you who are willing to surrender all. Disciples like you have no, who have no right rivals in terms of your loves. When you make choices, Jesus Christ is at the forefront of everything. And disciples who are willing to suffer and pay the price. Are you willing to be a disciple? Perhaps the most simple way I could state it would be this this morning. Are you a disciple? Are you a disciple? Because Jesus very plainly states it, as I mentioned a number of times in verse 26, 27, and 33. If you are not willing to do all three of these, you cannot be my disciple. And so this morning, I implore you, today, make the decision I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I will, by God's grace, put him first in my life. By his grace, I will suffer if necessary. And by his grace, I will surrender completely to his will. And may God use my life, may God use all of our lives to be the disciples that take the gospel of Christ to a lost and dying world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning and the joy of being able to preach it. I pray that you might use this scripture and these simple words from my stammering tongue to challenge all of us to love you more, to serve you better, and to live lives that are a reflection of our love for you because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins so that we could have eternal life. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in the proclamation of that gospel message to those who so desperately need it. We ask these things in Jesus' name.